Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 189 for the 11th of March, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin again. Hey, Paul. Hello, Chester. Welcome to spring. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's springtime here, so if I sound a little off, uh, a little nasally perhaps, we have the cherry blossoms and the trees all coming in new with their leaves here in Vancouver, and it's uh, it's disagreeing with my eyes and throat and nose and... Maybe things will be a little better in ice-cold Texas, where I'm off to tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, it's been a bizarre weather year in North America, and uh, I think it's about 10 degrees C cooler in Texas uh, than it is here in Vancouver, so I guess I count my blessings. That sounds like something that you might describe as a freak. Hint, hint. Exactly. I was going to say, it, it's been almost a week. Um, last Chat Chat, we just missed talking about Freak. It was disclosed, I think, later the day that we recorded. Not anything to panic over. I mean, the, the media tried to turn it into another Heartbleed. Um, to my knowledge, we're making progress because I don't think it had a logo. Uh, I don't think it did, uh, although the word was enough to strike fear into many people. A very interesting sort of cryptographic bug found by a whole team of researchers, including three from Microsoft who looked at what happens if you're a man in the middle and you can mess around with the TLS handshake after each end thinks it is using a strong uh, RSA key size, which should be good enough for confidentiality. And it turns out that actually in some implementations of TLS, even though each end thinks it's doing the right thing, you can get them both to fall back to a less secure key size. That sounds bad enough, but the flip side of the problem is many TLS libraries, for reasons that are kind of unfathomable, still include the so-called export grade uh, crypto support that was mandated in the US until the end of last century, where you could only use up to 512-bit RSA keys, uh, presumably to make it easy to crack foreigners' correspondence or something. And of course, 512-bit RSA keys were crackable just in 1999, although it would take average citizens you know, several months. These days, it's more like two weeks on a potent laptop or half an hour or something in the Amazon cloud. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is a recurring theme. It's sort of a bit of Groundhog Day here on, on the podcast that we talk about legacy things kind of coming back to bite us. And the real story here isn't even about whether these were backdoor ciphers or weak ciphers for the government's use. I mean, it, it is why they're there, but the story is much bigger than that. It's more of the part that you said, which is around the end of the last century, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, here we are, 2015, and we're exposed to flaws that are related to still having things from the previous century as part of our cryptographic protocols. Now, it's one thing for people to complain about not having the 16-bit virtual DOS machine in the newest versions of Windows uh, for old application support. It's another thing to be using cryptographic technology from that long ago because what we've you know, talked about many times before is the importance of sort of over-encrypting, right? Just because SHA-1 is sort of safe to use as a hash today, we know it won't be tomorrow. So it's better to not use it now because we'd like the things that we make today to work tomorrow, right? You kind of have to be one step ahead. Yes, and the particular irony here is that this 512-bit key limit 
even the US government recognized that this whole export grade cipher stuff was kind of silly. It was it was really hurting the US software industry because all that happened is everyone bought their crypto stuff overseas where this limit did not exist. So if the government said, okay, we made a mistake, we're going to stop that requirement, you can have keys as big as you want. Why didn't we just remove the code that we knew we were never going to need to use again? Yeah, and that's it's a problem with crypto, but I'm sure this won't be the last time we have this conversation. Microsoft did release uh, the standard Patch Tuesday release this week, uh, 14 vulnerabilities fixed, and, and, and the, the, the numbers start to look pretty weird when you start looking at it in more detail. We've got five remote code execution vulnerabilities, we have two information disclosures, one denial of service, two security feature bypasses, three elevation of privileges, uh, and one spoofing vulnerability. I don't know that I have seen a more diverse set of fixes. Yes, it's it's sort of like a like a, the ultimate training exercise, isn't it? It's got it's got absolutely everything. And as we have repeatedly said, it does go to show that these things never really hunt individually, do they? So you've got this cumulative security update for Internet Explorer that's got depth because it brings our, our remote code execution holes. And it's got width because it affects every single possible version, supported version of IE. There's RCEs even in the server core installs. So if you have those, which typically don't need patching so much because they have so much less to go wrong, this month you will be patching those. There are all sorts of bugs. So an information disclosure. Hey, that's a bug that can give you some information about what's where in memory, for example. And then that might be enough to take a potential remote code execution vulnerability and actively exploit it. And once you've done that, then you can use an elevation of privilege bug and suddenly you're sort of super administrator. Where would you like to go today? We don't need to go into it any further, do we? I mean, we say the same thing every month, which is just get out there and do them as quickly as you can. So am I allowed to say it? Patch early, patch often? Sure. Now, on the patch front, there was a critical vulnerability in the Zen hypervisor. So if you are using the open source Zen framework for virtual machines in your environment on Linux hosts, um, you do need to get that done. It is a pretty nasty one. And I believe Citrix has released fixes for their Zen server commercial product as well. So uh, I believe all the primary providers of Zen virtualized cloud environments have already taken care of it. I was certainly notified by Linode, uh, who I use to host some um, cloud services for myself, and they rolled out the emergency fixes before the public disclosure. Uh, Amazon, of course, uses it in their cloud service as well, and they have already fixed it. So Chester, does that let a guest erupt from its little jail and do stuff on the host? Or does it let two guests interfere with one another or what? Yeah, both. Uh, unfortunately, there's uh, both escaping from a guest into the host and from guests to muck with other guests. Oh, dear. Uh, it is really a critical one. In, in other news, uh, apparently anti-spam legislation, it doesn't seem like it's had much impact on my mailbox. But the Canadian anti-spam legislation, uh, which finally passed uh, about a year ago, seems to be working. I mean, there's a $1.1 million fine. Granted, most of the spam I get, I imagine, is coming from botnet-infected computers that aren't likely to comply with this new legislation. It is nice to know that there's, you know, people that are in the commercial business of illegally sending spam are getting getting slapped around for it. Yes, there were a few comments uh, on the article on naked security that John Hawes wrote about this issue, 
people saying, oh, what's the point? They're going after this Canadian company, but that's one company and most of the spammers don't care because they're not in Canada. So this is all a waste of time. I disagree with that because after all, at least it's setting the ground rules inside Canada itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Naked Security and I've been writing about this legislation since 2010. So it's nice to see it finally have some impact. We've also got some good news in that the three men allegedly responsible for the theft of a billion email addresses, allegedly as well from the Epsilon Marketing Group, was one of the big companies hacked where these addresses were stolen. Two of the three have been arrested. It looks like they're going to face prosecution in the United States. I thought that was an interesting story because A, what they did was definitely wrong and it's good that they've been caught. And B, it just reminds us that when crooks steal large lists of email addresses, it isn't harmless. I think a lot of people have the idea, well, I disclose my email address pretty openly. You know, I don't, it's not really considered PII. Okay, a couple of extra spammers get it, big deal. The point is, if you have a mailing list and you have with that mailing list some sort of context, like all these people are customers of X or all these, all these people have bought a product Y, then that is of value to the spammers. It does let them tailor their spam a bit better. It seems that there, st there was still $2 million in it shared between two or three guys. So even just lists of email addresses have very large value, even if it's only a small value per email address, and therefore it does matter. Oh, it, it absolutely matters. I guess we don't hear of these things in close time to when the crimes occur, so we think that they're never punished. And I, I guess, to me, it's a good reminder to folks that, unfortunately, the wheels of justice do turn quite slowly. You know, these things take time, right? This The hack was several years ago. Unfortunately, we have to be patient with justice. But eventually, it sounds like justice can be served. My understanding is one of the Vietnamese guys who's living in the Netherlands, he was arrested there in 2012. Uh, his extradition took, you know, one or two years after that. So when he got to the U.S. in March 2014, and then it only came to a hearing in February 2015. He has now pleaded guilty. He's going to get sentenced in April 2015. So as you say, it's a long time since the offence happened. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are these interconnected gears that all have to rotate correctly before his case can be processed. Um, final story to wrap up here uh, is, you know, you got to watch carefully when you're installing software. And I think in, a, in an app store world that we're so used to from our mobile devices, we get a little cavalier when we get back to our desktops. And, um, you know, I've heard about the dangers of torrenting. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this one. You know, this is a danger I hadn't really imagined. I mean, I use BitTorrent quite regularly to download Linux distributions. But in this case, it kind of came with a little extra payload. Yes, it's Foistware all over again, the micro-torrent software. When you install it, it comes with what's commonly called Foistware in the same way, you know, our readers of Naked Security complain about Adobe doing this with Flash and Reader, Oracle do it with some toolbar, goodness knows why. You can see why a company that's providing a small free product like MicroTorrent might want to. Uh, and in fact, when I did the test on my computer, my Windows computer, uh, it offered me Skype which when I agreed it installed it as part of the installation of MicroTorrent. Unfortunately, uh, in the few days before that, it seemed they'd done a deal with a company called Epic Scale, and they want to generate all this revenue that they can give to charity, and they do it by mining for Litecoins. 
Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of people found that that was maybe a bit more charity than they were willing to give, given that uh, mining for cryptocurrencies can chew through an awful lot of CPU power, generate an awful lot of heat, and uh, use, albeit not that much, still much more electricity than you might have bargained for. I guess I could kind of understand how do you fund development of MicroTorrent? It's a challenge. And at least they didn't superfish you. But on the other hand, you know, when I get something from Oracle, when your company counts its revenue in tens of billions of dollars and then decides to install the ask.com toolbar, there's sort of an ethical violation here. And I mean, I mean, is this what it comes down to? Like, do we have to be this careful now that every time we install an application, we need to read every line of small print? It, it just seems unethical. MicroTorrent, well, if you're careful with the dialogues, you would have recognized what it was going to do. As always, folks, be careful for what one of the readers on Naked Security called next, next, next syndrome. It can get you into much more trouble than you might think. Well, and folks often say buyer beware, but especially in the case where you're not buying, you need to be extra aware. <laughs> yes. So on that note, uh, I'm going to wrap up the Software Security Chat Chat 189. Uh, I, I am going to mention, though, that since before we can record the next Chat Chat will be the fifth anniversary of the Chat Chat. So I'm pretty pleased that we got to that landmark. It's been a lot of work producing 189 podcasts, as you well know. So thank you, Paul. Well, I like the result, and I think our listeners do too. So I'll just say it's been a pleasure, and long may it continue. Next week, I'll be joining you from Hanover, Germany at the CBIT conference. So if you're attending CBIT, I would love to meet you. Come by and say hi. As usual, our podcasts are available on iTunes. They're available via RSS, the TuneIn app, pretty much any kind of podcast player you might have. And you can also get it over at soundcloud.com slash Until next time, stay secure.